0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good morning and thank you for joining us this morning at this Institute for Government event to discuss ahead of Rishi Sunak's second budget next week, whether he needs to take active steps to get to grips with government borrowing and if so, when. I'm Gemma Tetlow, I'm Chief Economist at the Institute for Government and I'll start with a few uh, small housekeeping notes for today. Uh, This event is on the record If you'd like to put any questions to our panellists, please do start submitting them via Slido. You can do that by going to slido.com and entering the code budget. We will also be live tweeting today's event using the hashtag IFGBudget2021. So please do follow along and tweet along. And the video and sound recording from this event will be available on our website within 24 hours. Now, to get into the meat of the discussion... The Chancellor told the Conservative Party conference last year that, quote, this Conservative government will always balance the books, unquote. But the economic fallout of the coronavirus crisis has led to record borrowing, an increasing level of public debt, and a depressed outlook for the economy, and likely tax revenues in the medium term. On the other hand, government borrowing costs are at record lows. So, does government need to embark on a programme of fiscal consolidation, and if so, when? To discuss these questions, I'm delighted to be joined by four expert panellists. We have Simon Wren-Lewis, who is Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of Oxford and author of the popular economics and politics blog, Mainly Macro. Unfortunately, Simon's webcam isn't working today, so you will uh, just see a lovely picture of his face when he's talking. Uh, We also have Sir Robert Choate, who is chairman of the UK's Fiscal Watchdog, the Office of Budget Responsibility from 2010 until last autumn, and he's now a visiting professor at King's College London. We have Sarah Carlson who's a senior vice president at Moody's in their sovereign risk group where she's responsible for a portfolio of credits covering several European countries including until recently the UK and finally we have Tim Pitt who is a partner at Flint Global but previously served as a special advisor to both Philip Hammond and Sajid Javid during their times as Chancellor. Let me start then by coming first to you Simon um, you've written quite a bit about your thoughts on what the government needs to do in terms of fiscal consolidation and what the appropriate stance of fiscal policy is in relation to this crisis. Um, could you start off by, by just laying out your thoughts about what that appropriate role of fiscal policy is and if and when consolidation needs to start?
1: OK, thanks. And apologies um, for the fact you can't see me, although maybe that's your gain. Um, so... I think we have to say, first of all, that I think all our discussion here today is going to be predicated on the assumption that a combination of vaccine and government policy allows the economy to recover because it allows uh, cases to to continue to fall. Um, And uh, although that's perhaps likely, it shouldn't be assumed. because there are still real risks around involving variants and that kind of thing. So um, certainly what I'm going to say is going to put those risks aside, but we shouldn't ignore them. I've long argued, and I think a growing number of economists, um, including the big institutions, the IMF and OECD, now agree, that because of very low real interest rates, that's the current environment we're in, uh, essentially you have to have fiscal policy dealing with recessions and recoveries from recession, while monetary policy looks after inflation when recessions are over. And if you sort of have that as your background theory, then really we should forget about fiscal consolidation until the recovery from the recession that we're now in is complete. And um, as recoveries from recession don't happen overnight, that take years, that probably means over a two-year time horizon, we really should be thinking about how we need to stimulate the economy to get a quick recovery rather than how we should consolidate the public finances now I think the question of how we should stimulate the economy uh, is a very interesting one and it's certainly we shouldn't just tax cut tax cut uh, cut taxes in a sort of random way or, or anything like that we need to be very specific but perhaps that's something for for later discussion the general theme I think for me is stimulus over the next two years
0: thanks very much simon robert let me come to you next you obviously have spent uh, the best part of a couple of decades first at the ifs and then at the obr sort of holding the government's feet to the fire and whether they're being fiscally responsible what's what's your take on whether the government needs to consolidate and what the risks of not doing that uh quickly enough are
2: Sure. Uh, thank you very much indeed uh, for pointing at the record of poor career choices. Um, yes, I mean, I think in the in the near term, uh, I, I am presuming that one of the priorities out of the budget is going to be the idea that while restrictions are remaining, and as Simon said, obviously, this is contingent on uh, progress of the pandemic, progress of vaccine, etc., that you're likely to see the support for businesses and individuals Continuing essentially in parallel uh, with the uh, with the continuation of the restrictions, and that in a sense I think as, as as Paul Krugman nicely puts it, you can think of it more that's more kind of disaster relief and helping people through that rather than a, a fiscal stimulus per se as we would normally think about dealing with a, a period of, of weak demand. Um, I, looking then at the at the at the medium to longer term fiscal challenges, I'm obviously one question is whether this. Pandemic crisis turns out to have been in its fiscal consequences a essentially a you know a a, a a temporary period of very substantially increased borrowing because the restrictions on the economy are depressing revenues and the policy response is largely additional uh, public spending uh, but that you know we essentially get back to the sort of path that the economy would have been on previously in which case you've just had an upward level shift in debt relative to GDP, but you're not coming out of it with a substantial structural budget deficit. Um, At the risk of putting uh, words into his mouth, I think Simon's work and others would suggest that confronted with that sort of situation, you know, you do want to bring the debt to GDP ratio down in normal times, but you wouldn't want to go at that particularly uh, aggressively or particularly rapidly. And given the funding conditions at the moment, there doesn't seem to be a pressing requirement to do so. I guess one caveat is whether we have a worry now given with the financial crisis and this that you're in a world in which you ratchet the debt to gdp ratios successively higher shock by shock and the and the and the normal times never last long enough to uh, to to catch up that's that's a that is a challenge to to deal with Clearly, Then there is the question about whether you emerge from this with a structural budget deficit, Uh, and so if the uh, crisis has permanently scarred the potential output of the economy through some combination of business failures, uh, people becoming detached from the labour market, lost uh, capital uh, investment, uh, and that the, the path of potential GDP is lower in the future than you thought it was going to be, then your structure, then some of the borrowing that we're doing at the moment, but by no means all of the huge amount that we're doing at the moment, is not going to go away uh, as the economy uh, recovers. And that, depending on exactly what set of targets you have, some fiscal consolidation is required to do that. Again, I think, you know, the the case would be more pressing for doing something than if you simply had a level shift in the debt to GDP ratio. But again, Mm. Simon says some of the lessons that people have taken from the uh, post financial crisis period is, again, don't go at it too quickly or too aggressively, but don't ignore it entirely. And that has to be addressed. I think a third issue. Uh, which might you know, point to earlier action or the announcement of earlier action, is, is not the economic implications uh, of the crisis and what that implies for the fiscal position. But whether we emerge from this in particular feeling that we need to spend a higher proportion of GDP on public health and social care in particular, and maybe also coming out of this more mental health provision too, Uh, And that, you know, you basically are going to come out of this with the state being bigger than it was when you uh, went in. You could also argue maybe the same thing will turn out to apply to the, quote unquote, temporary increase in universal credit. Maybe it will be decided that's actually something that ends up being baked in and is not being reversed there, I think. If you're going to take a set of decisions that mean that public spending is going to be permanently higher as a share of GDP, then the logical thing to do is to, you know, is to be upfront with the public and say that is going to need uh, a permanently higher level uh, of taxation. Go back to Labour in the in the 2000s. They made the case for saying, look, you know, we want to spend more on the NHS and there needs to be an increase in national insurance to help pay for that, slightly disingenuous at the time, he could have said it was to pay for higher tax credits as well. So, I would make some distinction there between uh, the case for tax increases to address choices you might wish to make about the state being bigger, and you know the you know, your ability to to get health spending you know back down. It's clearly going to come down a lot from the peak that we're at at the moment. But you know Simon Stevens, who runs the NHS, is a you know is an Olympic. Quality rattler of the collection tin at the best of times, uh, and there will obviously, I think, be strong support amongst the public, I presume, for some increase in the resilience of, of the health and welfare system, more broadly defined. And that that provides a different set of arguments for uh, some other tightening in the fiscal position elsewhere, offsetting that increase in public spending.
0: Thanks very much, Robert. That's very helpful, laying out all the many reasons why we might be facing fiscal consolidation or tax rises in some form. Sarah, let me come to you next. Um, As has already been said, government bond rates are at incredibly low levels, and that has led a lot of people to suggest that the government really doesn't need to worry about how much it's borrowing for quite a long time. Um, From your perspective, what might change investors' views? What might lead to those bond rates going up again? Um, And how should we be thinking about the position of the UK compared to what other countries are doing at the same time?
3: Sure. Um I mean, I think one thing is really important to come back to, and it's probably the most common question that I get asked by investors who are usually coming to us wanting to talk not just about one country, but on a comparative basis, talking about multiple countries, is the concern that investors have about growth potential. Uh, Martin Wolf published something in the FT recently talking about uh, weak UK productivity growth, comparing it to Italy. And I think that's quite important for this discussion about uh, fiscal consolidation in the UK. We've all seen from the Italian example, which has other challenges the UK doesn't, just how difficult it is to get a debt burden down in the economy that struggles to grow. And one of the reasons why we downgraded the UK at Moody's last year uh, by one notch were actually concerns that we have about the longer term growth potential of the UK, in part due to Brexit, but also just recognizing that this, uh, this productivity growth challenge that persisted since the end of the global financial crisis is something that uh, has has not been alleviated. I think the other thing to bear in mind, and it's actually baked into the way that we rate sovereigns, is investors are really recognizing that there is this balance between, yes, very elevated levels of debt stock measured in debt-to-GDP or debt-to-revenues, but also, and this is important from a methodological point for us at a rating agency, uh, the, uh, the debt affordability ratio, so the ratio of interest payments to revenues or GDP, is falling. And that's something that's in common with countries uh, with advanced markets uh, in general. We see it across uh, really all countries in, in Western Europe. Um, And that does give countries some breathing room. I think the question, and it's one of the questions that we would ask in the context of the Euro area after uh, their crisis is this gives governments breathing room but then what do they do with that breathing room? Uh, Or do they take measures to over the longer term put the public finances on a, a, a more stable footing or uh, do do they kick the the difficult decisions down the road? Um, and I mean, we haven't seen a country with uh, that that's a reserve currency, and we and the UK is of course a reserve currency, have those uh, those confidence issues that we saw in some of the weaker Euro area countries during that crisis. Uh, so we don't really have any uh, any prior experience with that in the recent past, um, but. Certainly, if there were some lack of confidence that governments were going to take measures to ultimately start addressing some of these more fundamental issues, even if it's if even if those measures are slower moving, but but are still structural, uh, you know that's that's one of the things that um, you know we think European investors are going to be looking at. Great,
0: thank you. Tim, let me come to you finally then. So far, we've mainly discussed some of the economic considerations around how the government should think about borrowing. But You've written uh, very interestingly about some of the more political considerations about when the Chancellor should be wanting to get to grips with uh, the deficit. Could you say a bit about how you think those political considerations might overlay on all of this?
4: Yeah, thanks, Gemma. Um, no, I mean, I think on, on, on the politics, the, the, the starting point is that I think the politics... Is- Debt and deficit are about to make a kind of roaring income because the, the, the public are in a very different place to where the, the consensus among the economics profession uh, is at the moment, I think. So, and, and there's been a really big shift in public opinion over the last year or so. So, so debt, debt and deficits were obviously a very big issue uh, in the public's mind in the early 2010s, but basically, by the time the, the pandemic came along, they disappeared from view. The public thought the job of fixing the public finances uh, had been done and they'd kind of moved on to other issues. COVID has completely changed that picture. So there's definitely been strong public backing for the Chancellor's uh, support packages in, in, in the in the near term. But over the last year, a very clear view has developed that eventually amongst the public, eventually we are going to need to get on top of all this debt and an acknowledgement that there will be difficult decisions ahead as we do so. And that applies just as much in red wall seats of the North and Midlands as it does uh, elsewhere. Now You can debate the reasons for that. And you can challenge the idea economically thinking about the debt being paid back isn't that helpful and I know Simon has you know strong views on that but that is the political reality and I think the return of, of the politics of debt presents actually a, a, a strategic opportunity for the Tories medium term short-term challenges but medium term opportunity and I think a real challenge for Labour so La- Labour's recent leaked internal strategy document made very clear that no element of the party's Brand is, is protected from their lack of trust on the economy and, and the perception of what makes the party look competent on the economy is very closely wedded uh, to their management of the public finances and, and, and the public simply just don't trust Labour on that still. So if the Tories are smart, they, they will capitalise on that, that, they'll make the debt and deficit a clear dividing line again with uh, Labour. But obviously to do that, uh, you need to have a fiscally credible plan yourself. The Chancellor is clearly... Thinking about this, the big question for him is, will his backbench MPs back in? And more importantly, the big question always for Charles is: is your, is your Prime Minister going to back you as well when, when the kind of difficult decisions uh, come? And I think there's the, the kind of final point I'd say on the politics, which is um, uh, there, there, there is obviously a kind of issue around the timing of the consolidation, which is you know, ideally the politics and the economics chime in perfect harmony. And you know on the Bank of England scenario, a relatively... Uh, quick recovery, um, yeah. Uh, you know, with the economy back to its pre-COVID level by this time next year, you can start a fiscal repair job in April 2022, and and that works for the politics and the economics. If there is a slower recovery than that, the economics is pushing you uh, uh, to delay your consolidation. The, the politics is still saying basically plow ahead with it, and I think that is going to be where the difficult choice might come for the chancellor potentially in 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 in, in the autumn.
0: Thanks very much, Tim. So I think. Although you've all presented slightly different perspectives on this, there's broad agreement amongst all of you that there's not an immediate need for the Chancellor to set out and to implement tax rises or spending cuts to immediately try and get borrowing down. And indeed, from the economic side, there are uh, significant costs that could potentially emerge from attempting to do that at a point when the economy needs fiscal support instead. Um, but I think for various different reasons, you've all pointed to the need at some point, um, particularly, as Robert said, if either we want higher levels of public spending in future or if the UK economy has been permanently harmed by the COVID crisis. At some point, there is likely to be a need for the government to adjust tax and spending policy to meet that reality. Um, so I suppose my question, first question to all of you then is, What do you think the Chancellor needs to say either in this budget or over the coming months about those longer term ambitions that he has? To what extent does he need to start being clear about where he's aiming to get to, even if not immediately? And does that ambition need to be formalised in something like the fiscal rules that we've seen over the last couple of decades? Um, Or is our experience of fiscal rules that they always get ditched anyway, and therefore the benefit of those to any form of credibility is pretty low. Um, perhaps uh, I'll go to Robert first.
2: Yeah, I mean um, <clears throat> um I think that's right. The in I, I would suspect that the focus in the budget will be in the first instance on continuing to support people through the period when the the restrictions are remaining. So as I say the support of businesses and uh, and individuals. Um, I would be surprised but you know I guess not astonished if there was an, you know uh, there was an attempt to uh, you know set out some you know <clears throat> framing of medium-term expectations and roughly where you want to get to whether you would go I think it's unlikely I presume that you would go to precisely defined fiscal rules uh, at this stage and I think partly um, this is one of those situations when the the decision, the medium term decisions on health and social care spending in particular are so consequential that rather than sort of put your, your rules framework in place and then come to that second, you kind of need to take the two uh, together. Whenever you, as you rightly point out, you know, uh, we've had, you know, uh, many... Uh, I'm always reminded with fiscal rules. I think Edna Everidge once interviewed Jane Seymour and started the interview by saying, "Jane, you've had four successful marriages. What's your What's your secret?" And you can sort of approach fiscal rules in much the same way. We've had a lot of successful fiscal rules, and uh, uh, the secret may not be uh, that clear. But you, you, when you when you put them in place, you genuinely put them in place partly with an idea to what you think good management of the public finances looks like but also from the starting point of the spending and tax decisions that you want to be taking at the time you put the rules in place because obviously the first time out you're going to want to say that you're on course to to meet those so for that reason it may be that putting together a sort of you know a a a clear set of quantitative targets and timetable is something that may have to come alongside those spending decisions Uh, But that wouldn't preclude you from saying something along the lines of we need to be ensuring that the debt to GDP ratio is coming down, uh, um, you know, in normal times and creating uh, fiscal space for the next uh, crisis when it comes along. Um, I mean, from the economic perspective, I mean, I think it's it's hard to be much more scientific than saying that that is a sensible thing to do, because obviously the challenge is you don't know how far away. And how big the next shock is going to be? We've had two once-in-a-lifetime shocks in twelve years. Uh, is that the start of a pattern? And that's what you have to expect, which means you have to think, you know, quite hard then about what you need to do in good times. If the bad times are more frequent and the bad times are worse, uh, those are, you know, those are further considerations. Um, and I think the other challenge with fiscal rules is that, um, as Sarah was pointing out, you you don't want you can't really look at one country in isolation. We always think about you know, rules in a domestic context. And, uh, you know, maybe there is some right answer to the debt to GDP ratio you want to aim at. But the reaction of investors, I presume, depends, you know, at least as much on where one country stands in relation to others. You would be uh, less worried, perhaps, if you had a 100 percent debt to GDP ratio and so did everybody else than if yours was 80 and rising and everyone else was 50 and stable. So that's another challenge for thinking that there's a sort of, you know, very clear, robust framework that this is what you want to be be aiming for in, in rules terms.
0: Let me come to you next, Sarah, then. How do investors view
3: this? Uh, I mean, questions about fiscal rules are really interesting. Um, Different countries take very different approaches. When I look back across successful fiscal consolidations in advanced economies, one of the things that they often have in common are fairly strong fiscal rules that take into account the fact that the cycle can vary, but that really are finding that then helps politicians sometimes take the difficult decisions that they need to make. And fiscal rules are helpful because they provide a policy anchor for policymakers. But for investors, they also provide policy predictability. And if you have clear, credible, strong fiscal rules, uh, then that means investors have predictability about what's likely to what the government's reaction function is going to be to unforeseen events, for example. And uh, you know, it's it's worth remembering that on the eve of the global financial crisis, uh, it was actually if I compare the UK and Germany, it was actually Germany that had had the higher debt burden. Uh, and what we saw during the, the period following the, the global financial crisis and the European financial crisis is uh, the success of the schwarz policy in really sustainably and predictabl- predictably bringing down the debt. It's not that Germany has fantastic growth potential. I mean, German growth potential because of demographic fit factors going forward is, uh, is relatively modest. But what it's done is it's had fiscal rules that were commensurate uh, with its growth potential. And as a result, going into the coronavirus uh, crisis, when I compare Germany to, to other large advanced economies in this part of the credit space, it's the one that actually entered the, the COVID crisis with a lower debt burden than it had going into to the global financial crisis. And I think we have to credit uh, a strong fiscal rule. A framework for that and you can see the the reaction of that for uh, on the part of investors with German yields though of course a uh, very accommodative monetary policy also plays an important role there thank you Simon let me come to you next
1: um yeah I've, I know quite a lot about fiscal rules and when um Jonathan Portes and I wrote our paper on fiscal rules uh The key thing that was in there was the idea, going back to what I said earlier, that in a recession, fiscal policy needs to do the stimulus. And one thing that nobody's talked about really should is interest rates. Interest rates tell you when fiscal policy should be doing the action and when it should stop. And I would argue that the way we decide when, we should start thinking about consolidation and stop thinking about stimulus. Is when interest rates start rising to sort of kind of two percent or above levels, um, and we're a long way away from that. And I'm, I'm a bit concerned that you know everyone's very happy about talking about fiscal consolidation, and, and as Bik pointed out. Um, so, apparently, at voters. But you can kind of talk yourself into an inbuilt pe- pessimism here. Um, if you're all the time talking about, well, we're going to have to do lots of tough things in the future, then people are going to hold back on spending, investors are going to hold back on investment because they think the demand will vote there, and you get into kind of a, a pessimistic circle whereby the economy doesn't recover very strongly because everyone's anticipating this fiscal retrenchment. So um, I'm I'm not a great fan of telegraphing future fiscal retrenchment because you just don't know what you're gonna need to do. Um, How how far is the economy going to recover? That's gonna be crucial in deciding how much fiscal consolidation should you do. So really, if I was, I was Chancellor, I wouldn't be talking about fiscal consolidation at this point. I would be talking about how we need, in what areas we need to stimulate the economy to get a good recovery. I mean, I, the analogy I have to draw here is with um, what happened after the global financial crisis. The Treasury worked out that GDP was going to be about, trend GDP was going to be about 5% lower, We had strong fiscal consolidation, and it ended up that the the fall in trend GDP was twice that amount, and I worry that there's an endogeneity there, and we kind of talked ourselves into a very pessimistic scenario, and I don't want that to happen, whatever uh, voters might be thinking. We should be led by the economists, not by voters.
0: Thanks Simon. Uh, Tim let me come to you finally then and perhaps you can pick up on the, uh, Simon's point there and is there a way that the government can talk about this without it being terribly pessimistic and um, dampening consumer optimism?
4: Yeah well I mean I think it wouldn't surprise you to say I think I think a slightly different view that I think was probably led by voters rather than economists necessarily I mean um, you know that that is what politicians uh, have to do I mean in, ter- in terms of the fiscal. Rules themselves, I think you know, absolutely it's important to have some kind of fiscal framework. It's an important part of the UK's institutional credibility. It also plays an important from a treasury perspective, it's very helpful in providing some overall constraint which can help control uh the spending in the department and also more importantly, you know, from your neighbours in number 10 to try and find some control over, over over spending. So I think it's an, an important anchor to have. But I think it's important to remember that fiscal rules, you know, they, they are primarily a tool of, of economic and fiscal management. They're also a political tool. And, you know, less so in, in, in recent years, but, but historically, George Osborne, for example, used them very politically, trying to create clear dividing lines with Labour, clear traps for, for Labour. Now, there are disadvantages about doing that, but I think it's in, in, in important to think about that. And, you know, in terms of the politics, if I was you know, the, the Chancellor now, I'd be saying to myself, you know, I agree, we don't want to set fiscal rules now. I think the autumn is... But likely the time he might want to do that, assuming the recovery We're kind of out of COVID, uh, worse of worse COVID by then. But if I, you know, when when he does come to think about it, I'd be saying to myself, I want a set of fiscal rules that are the loosest possible, that still allows me to have a clear uh, dividing line with Labour. I.e., Labour won't won't sign up to them. And so when I was at the Treasury, the thing that we thought about was hanging it on debt falling—a clear dividing line. The Tories would get debt falling. Labour wouldn't and they let it spiral out of control, etc. And actually that, that doesn't constrain you that much. All you need to have debt falling in the political line is for it to be falling by 0.1% of GDP over the forecast, right? Simply you're saying debt is flat, you just make it fall in, 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 in the forecast. Um so I think you know it's important to remember fiscal rules are are a kind of uh, a political tool as, as well as an, an, an economic one. But the final point I would make is if I was Labour, I would be strongly tempted to sign up to whatever rules the Chancellor sets out. You know, this is the, one of their biggest weaknesses is lack of trust on, on the public uh, finances. I don't think the rules that the Chancellor sets out in due course will be kind of Osborne-era hawkish, no talk of an absolute surplus or anything like that. And from Labour's perspective, they probably do well to remember that, you know, the only time in 45 years they've kicked the Tories out of office was when they signed up to the Tory spending plans ahead of the ninety-seven election. So that, that's something for them to think about as well.
1: Can I just bring in a point about debt? Uh, If you're going to have a fiscal rule, the last thing you should do is target government debt. And the reason for that is very simple. And that is that debt is, in a sense, it's it's what's there to allow you to to stabilise the economy. Um, And it's very subject to shocks. And so if you have a a, a debt target, you're going to break it Um, because something will happen to to push you off that target. So it's very vulnerable to shocks. So that's why sensible rules have deficits in them. Those deficits can have an idea about what the long-run target for debt is, but targets that involve debt are a bad idea.
3: Uh, If if I can jump in as well, I mean, targets that involve debt are actual, uh, fiscal rules that involve debt are pretty unusual Is that being the primary uh, indicator of whether or not a fiscal rule is being met, much more common, are uh, unfortunately we seem to have lost uh, Sarah. Hopefully, when she comes back, I'm we- back. <laughs> ah, right, you're back. Excellent. Um, so much more common are rules that uh, that look at uh, you know expenditure growth or or. Ah.
0: Okay, um, we seem to be having a problem with Sarah's connection. So, I I will. Did anyone else want to? up oh, Sarah, are you back
3: now? I am, but I'm I'm a bit f- afraid to continue. <laughs> just in case, <laughs> after twice. Um, so. Just...
0: No, we seem to be having some problems. Like, did anyone else want to come in on that question, or shall I move on to the next one? I think there's a,
2: can I, maybe just one. Answer. I mean, on Simon's point on the debt thing. Um, From the political point of view, I think they would make a distinction between is debt moving in the right direction as distinct from is there an anchor point to which you are aiming and a particular time horizon over which you're uh, doing that. And I'd certainly entirely take the point uh, on, you know, aiming for a particular debt level at a particular point in time. The uncertainties around the path uh, are very difficult there. The notion of selling people on the idea that you are, you know, we've had, you know, debt has gone up. I think it's interesting that the voter reaction, I mean I'm talking to you know the people that one can talk to at two meters distance in the in the street and on the shop. There is the argument that, oh gosh, we've spent all this money, we're gonna to have to pay that back. And I think that's resonant with voters, but clearly wrong in the in an economic uh, sense. But the notion of you know needing to be in a position where in relatively good times you're building up a bit more fiscal space so you have the capacity. Exactly. As Simon says, to be able to use it in quantity and aggressively when you in particular when you need to is a is a is a difficult challenge. And the and the question, therefore, of you know, what level of ambition and how quickly do you want to get to a quote unquote normal state at which you're trying to build a bit more of that in um, isn't straightforward. I think on the rules point, I mean, I'm, <clears throat> as well, uh, Gemma and I many, many years ago uh, with others, uh, uh, co-authored something arguing for a sustainable commitments rule, which was essentially a, a ceiling for debt interest as a share of GDP plus PFI and some public service pension contributions as well, thus taking into account the fact that you can you can sustain a higher debt level when it's cheaper to borrow. Uh, some other people in the US have, have argued for something similar relatively recently. I think that's worth looking at there are problems with uh, with that and how, you know, do you get the you know, the signal to respond quickly enough if the funding conditions change. But um, uh, looking at flows, you know, uh, uh, most policy is made in flows most of the time. Uh, And thinking about that as well as exactly where the debt stock is or where it's going to go uh, is important.
0: Sarah, do you want to have a final uh, bash at the points you were trying to make there?
3: I'll, I'll cross my fingers. It, it, I think the, the point that, that Robert was just making is, is quite important. Um, where yeah, where we see successful uh, application of strong fiscal rules, it's usually looking at an entire economic cycle and bearing in mind that in the good times, uh, you know, surpluses uh, your primary surpluses, are built up structural surpluses are built up to then give governments the space to to use, to much more fiscal space to use in the in the bad times and we've seen that um you know i think pretty pretty clearly in the case of germany suspending its fiscal rule in response to in the response to the coronavirus
0: thank you Um, So my next question, then, I'm picking up on some things that have also come in um, from viewers. If we sort of move away from thinking about the medium term more to the short term, what do each of you think the the budget should be doing in terms of fiscal support for the economy over the next few months as we hopefully uh, start to recover and reopen um, from the pandemic? Um, Let me uh, perhaps I will go in uh, reverse order and come to Tim first. Actually, just um, to add to this sort of context, there's always been quite a lively debate in the US about whether Biden's proposals in this area are going too far and risk overheating the US economy. Um, what's your, if you have a take on that, that'd be great to hear. And do you think that's also a concern we should be worrying about in the UK? Tim, yeah. I mean,
4: also, yeah. So I mean, that, that you know, there's kind of two judgments the chancellor's got to make. Right. Essentially, a what is the size of that stimulus, and then the second judgment is what's floating. The first is how do you then apportion that stimulus, mix between the extension of the existing support schemes and what replaces those as those as they are phased out as the economy reopens. On, on, on the size of the stimulus and, and the Biden uh, uh, analogy, I don't think it's a particularly helpful uh, analogy for the UK for a number of reasons. Not least because the Chancellor has much more control over his fiscal levers than Joe Biden does. Right, Biden basically gets one or possibly two shots at getting this through. Congress, the Chancellor can come back repeatedly, right? So he can, you know, the Treasury phrase is "you shoot often." He can he can do it slightly more regularly and take a, a hit now. And if it's not enough, he can come and provide more support in the summer uh, if he needs to. I think the other thing like, in terms of this, you know, Robert and Simon will the others about views on 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 the actual from an economic point of view whether Biden's stimulus is, is too big. But Rupert Harrison said the other day, if Larry Summers thinks it's too big. You know, that probably tells you it's probably too big. You know I think you know so I'm I'm not sure we should be comparing it necessarily too much with with, with what's Biden doing. That said, you know I do think you know he will want to lay out a pretty generous package. Uh, in the short term, I think the risks of doing too little and having a slower recovery and more uh, scarring probably do outweigh the risks on the inflationary side of of, of doing too much. Um, as I said, the, the kind of second judgment then flows around. You know, how do you portion that stimulus between exi- extending the existing schemes and, and replacing it with what I'd call more traditional fiscal stimulus measures. I think in terms of extending the furlough and uh, schemes like that, the, the kind of crisis support measures, uh, you want to move off those relatively quickly because you don't want to be propping up businesses and jobs that aren't viable long uh, term. But you know, you don't want to cause a big short-term spike in unemployment by ripping the past drop too quickly. So, you know, extending them and then tapering them broadly in line with the lockdown easing, but I think giving some additional leeway beyond that is probably a sensible thing to do. And and then and then there's then there's the question about what 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 measures then replace that to support the economy through the second half of the year and into next year, make sure we have a robust recovery. I think you know there's gonna be a whole package of measures around labour market support haven't seen much talk about a temporary employer next cut. I wonder whether that type of thing uh, might, might, might be in play. I think there'll be a package of measures around investment, particularly trying to stimulate business investment. And then I think there's a kind of interesting um, economic, but also political question around what, whether it does something to try and stimulate consumer demand. You know, there's obviously lots of pent-up savings, arguably not in the right place that you would want them. You know, primarily in kind of wealthier households. Um, so, you know... In the scenario, something like the ECAP to help out scheme, you know, would might might make sense. There are obviously, obviously it's got a bit of a checkered history, so I think we might tread with caution uh, in in that space.
0: Thanks Simon, over to
1: you. Okay. Um I agree on the the support. Well, first of all on Biden. I mean Yeah, the US is very different, and the main reason the US is very different is that they haven't been supporting workers; they haven't had a furlough scheme the way we have. And so, what they the the way they are able to support people um, who become unemployed uh, or you know whose income has has fallen as a result of um, the absence of a furlough scheme has to be very broad brush, and it has to. Be very wasteful in a sense because you just blanket give money to people, some of which need it, and some which don't. So, I think for, for lots of reasons, the, the Biden uh, package, which I think in the US context makes a lot of sense, doesn't really translate over to, to the UK. Uh, yes, we should be carry on support as long as it's needed and then gradually phasing out particularly the elements related to firms if you suddenly end loans just when people are going back into restaurants you will kill a lot of businesses which are perfectly viable so you know that that's kind of basic sensible stuff i'd actually do one other thing in the short term which the chancellor has been very stubborn about and which is very dangerous. As I said, we're we're not out of the woods yet with this virus. And one of the big problems is that a lot of people who should be isolating aren't. And, you know, the basic reason for that is they can't afford to. And so an obvious measure, which is to raise sick pay at least temporarily, um, you know, that's something I would put in the budget. Uh, Once you get beyond that and on the assumption that, that cases fall and therefore the economy can recover. Um, again, I agree with some things. I would, would add some more. Uh, the 3% limit for public investment is as a and um, I would go well beyond that. And there's so much that could be being done that isn't being done. So I would increase public investment. Um, I think I would also, uh, increase some areas of public expenditure. Um, essentially, austerity austerity hasn't gone away, and there's some areas of public spending which are uh, in absolute crisis. So, uh, the chancellor should take the opportunity of doing that at the right time, so you stimulate the economy and uh, provide the, the the support that that's needed. I wouldn't. Do anything like cut taxes because I think there will be a bounce back in consumer spending. Um I mean, I think the the saving is there for pretty well all income groups except the poorest fifth. And there's quite a lot of spending power in that. So I think consumer spending is going to come back of its own accord. But what I think that means is that any sort of fiscal stimulus should be directed very much to that lowest fifth quantile. And that means doing much more on universal credit and things like that. Um, And one thing finally I wouldn't do is extend the stamp duty holiday. I mean, that was a waste of time uh, in the first place and shouldn't be extended. Oh, well, I wouldn't cap public sector pay. I mean, it's a bad thing to do in the recovery. Um, Again, I wouldn't do it. Okay, I think that's probably enough (laughs) for
4: the moment.
3: Thanks, Simon. Uh, Sarah? Um, I mean, it's it, we're we're not in the business of giving governments uh, policy advice. Uh, and so you know, I'll hold back from from saying what we think the government should do. But I think that you know, it's worth bearing in mind, you know, there there have been references to the Biden stimulus. Two things I would say about that.. Um, First of all, it's worth bearing in mind just how large this stimulus is. Uh, You know, if Biden isn't able to get everything, but he's able to get most of what he wants through, which is what it looks like right now. So we're looking at, say, 1.5, 1.7 trillion. That's seven or eight percent of GDP. That is huge. And as a result, I mean, the U.S. economy didn't take as big of a hit. Uh, It grew by, sorry, it contracted by about 3.5 percent. Last year, but that then sets the U.S. up to have quite a strong rebound. So, over four and a half percent this year, five percent next year. As far as inflationary pressures, it's possible that you could have some short-term, but longer-term increases in inflationary expectations are really quite some way off. And ultimately, I think as Janet Yellen said recently, we also know what the, the the Fed knows what to do uh if the if inflation looks like it's going to be sustainably rising above target but i think there's also a really important point to to stress about the difference between the the uk and the u.s which is the the unique position that the u.s has in terms of the role of the dollar and the role of u.s treasuries in the international financial markets which is an advantage that no other country has uh, and it's something that means that the u.s can sustain um higher debt burdens than uh than than most other than really any other country can simply because of that uh that institutional role of, of the dollar and treasuries thank you and finally robert
2: uh, yes um i don't think i've got anything terribly novel to add of that certainly in the in the near term I would expect most of the support mechanisms, and I think of what the government's doing at the moment primarily as support rather than stimulus in the conventional sense of just doing something to to boost aggregate uh, demand and that uh, you keep that in place while the restrictions are there and, and those things are moving in parallel. Then as Tim implies, I presume coming out of the uh, in the immediate aftermath of that acute phase and the withdrawal of that you would be thinking about what particularly needs to be done to help the adjustments that are going on uh, in the labor market uh, on that on that basis uh, with well, the biden stuff i think i probably agree with uh, with what most what most people have said it uh, you know the the case for something of that sort uh, doesn't seem particularly strong in the uk in terms of the economics or the, the politics of, as, as you say, the, the, the irony of you know how difficult it is to get fiscal policy done uh, in uh, in the US, and administrations have relatively few shots at it. In the UK, of course, the remarkable thing is that we're normally used to chancellors being able to do pretty much what they like twice a year. We've had a period when the chancellor's been able to have about fourteen budgets in the space of of twelve months, and that's not. Something that's uh, available in the US, so you can understand why they might be thinking, you know, there's one opportunity, the politics need to be behind the household payments. When you might, as Simon says, think that's not the hugely well targeted thing, but, you know, go big, go once. Um, uh, and it's a different world. But I'm, a, <clears throat> I'm slightly entertained by, um, you know, there's obviously been the debate about fiscal policy with the modern monetary theory. People and uh, Larry Summers and Olivier Blanchard have been very critical of that school of thought, Um, but uh, they're doing what the MMT people say, which is considering the merits of a fiscal uh, package on the basis of its impact for inflation and not for affordability. So uh, uh, crises make the strange bedfellows.
0: Thank you. And we've actually had a related question come in um, from a member of the audience, um, specifically from Russell Lynch from The Telegraph, who asks um, what the panellists think uh, about the potential for the mooted increases in corporation tax to damage uh, the post-COVID recovery. Um, Perhaps I'll I'll put that specifically to Robert and Simon, um, but if the other two of you want to come in on that, um, please do as well. Uh, Robert, come to you first.
2: Well, I guess there's the there's the issue about, you know, what does that do to demand and activity in the economy, which might reflect how quickly you were going to do it and where the end point is. Um, I think Stuart Adam, our former colleague, was, was quoted in the paper today saying that at the moment, the UK is, you know, broadly in the middle of the range of, of corporate tax uh, rates when you put in all the different dimensions of corporate tax together. So, you know, moving up would take you up in the table, but you're not starting at the uh, at the top there um again i think i presume in terms of investor response uh it depends where you are relative to other countries as well and i think the government is presumably feeling that with the trend in corporate tax rates that's anticipated in the us that there's a bit more space you know both economically and politically to do that uh, than there than there otherwise uh, would be but uh, uh, the other point i you know to make is that you know we can debate over whether you think fiscal consolidation is a good or a bad thing but if you have said i'm not going to raise the main rates of vat income tax and national insurance corporation tax is essentially the last main rate you've got left to do anything with
0: thanks simon
1: yeah i mean it's yet another item from the labor manifesto which the conservatives said was really awful at the time and they're now adopting um, I mean, again, I wouldn't do it now. I wouldn't announce it now. Uh, I would I would think about doing that um, in a year or two's time once the recovery is uh, pretty well complete and interest rates have increased substantially. Um, but then, yes, I think there's a good case for raising corporation tax. Um, uh, and um, if you're going to raise a, a tax... As Robert said, there aren't many others left. So, uh, uh, if you if you feel you need to raise taxes, if the uh, consolidation is required once recovery is complete, then corporation taxes is, is not a bad
0: way of doing it. Thank you. And so, let me pick up on that point about the Tory manifesto pledges with you, Tim. Because a few people have posed similar types of questions in the chat. To what extent do you think the Chancellor's actions will be constrained over this Parliament by that triple tax lock from the manifesto that they won't raise the rates of income tax, national insurance or that? And do you think we'll see this government going into the next election with that same pledge in their manifesto?
4: Well, uh, the, the Chancellor's Treasury officials will be desperately not going to go the next uh, election with that in the manifesto. Look, I think it's clearly very constraining. They are they are the three big You would ordinarily pull if you wanted to do uh, a kind of fiscal consolidation, as Robert said, then corporation tax is the only one left, and so it makes lots of sense for him uh, to pull that lead. That, that lever, I think, it will be phased till uh, later in the parliament, and actually on the timing of announcing it. You now, while it won't kick in immediately, I do think um, it's much easier to announce tax rises um, if you know to, to kick in in a few years' time. If you're at the same time you're doing a big general sh- uh, short-term support package, this will probably be his last budget where he's doing that. So, getting that. Um, uh, you know, announcing some, some tax rises for later in the Parliament makes lots of political sense from, from, from that perspective. Um, I think, you know, I, in, 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 I, I do think that they will do everything they can to stick to that manifesto commitment. Ultimately, it really depends on what the size of the fiscal consolidation is needed to try and get debt back on, on, on a stable path. If it ends up being sort of 20, 25 billion, you can see a path to getting there without having to pull those big levers. If it is in the region of 40 or 50 billion, it is very, very hard. I think, I think if 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 they are kind of forced in if it's the latter scenario, the one kind of alternative which gets you around the manifesto, and which people haven't talked a lot about recently, but Nick McPherson, the previous secretary of the Treasury has talked about a lot, is having essentially a you know health and social care surcharge, which would work quite a lot like Nick's or Income tax, it wouldn't technically breach the manifesto, but you could raise. If you did that, you could raise a big amount of money. If there was ever a time to do that, in the aftermath of the pandemic, might uh, might 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 be the time to do it. I'm not necessarily advocating it. It's politically fraught with difficulty, but that is the one way I think you could you could pull a big fiscal lever and get around the manifesto. Thank you.
0: Sarah, let me come to you uh, next with a sort of combination of questions that have come in from various people um, about the what are the prospects that interest rates will remain low for quite a long time, and what might make us concerned that we can no longer rely on the kindness of strangers, so-called, to fund our government borrowing?
3: Well, I think to take the, the second question first, I mean, the UK has an advantage which... Um, you know, has its head for a while. It's not quite as strong as it used to be, but it does have quite a strong home bias. I mean, one of the reasons why, to pull in uh, an international example from outside of this region, one of the reasons why Japan can sustain such a large uh, debt burden, and yes, it's debt affordability, it, metrics are relatively high, but not nearly as high as you would expect given the size of the debt load, which is an excess of 200% of GDP. It's because of a strong home bias. Um, I mean, the the Japanese home bias is stronger than anyone's. But I think that goes to this point about the kindness of strangers. Now, the, the UK's home bias isn't as strong as it once was. And that's also not a silver bullet. I mean, the Italy also has quite a strong home bias, and that hasn't shielded it from uh, from Spikes in yields when when there have been crises uh, of confidence in the la in the last decade, for example. Um, I mean, what co- what could force rates higher? I mean, it's you know, in some respects, if you in sort of normal economic cycles, if you were to start to see rates trending higher, that can mean that the economy is returning to some kind of more normal state, right? Um, uh, central bankers have, have been desperate to have a bit more inflation for a while. A bit more inflation also helps uh, to, to erode the debt burden. Um, and so that, that wouldn't necessarily be, be uh, negative news. However, if you were to have some sort of exogenous shock, uh, that would affect the UK more than, than other economies of its type. That could be something, but um, again, it really depends on what the broader state of the economy is. But our base case expectation would be that interest rates are going to remain uh, at pretty favorable uh, levels for, for quite some time.
0: Thank you. Robert, can I come to you on this one as well? Because um, in the sort of international American, particularly US uh, economic debate, um, Olivier Blanchard and others have pointed out that government interest rates have been below growth rates for a long time, and that should give governments more scope, particularly for paying for one-off big investments. Um, But uh, you did some analysis when you were at the OBR that suggested actually for the UK, it's less true that for long periods of our history, uh, interest rates have been uh, below growth rates could you say a bit about how you see the risks for the uk perhaps distinct from the us in this relation
2: uh yes i mean on on average the relationship is favorable but you know you have quite extended periods where you know in the jargon r minus g is doing you a favor and periods when it isn't i mean clearly the expectations are the moment of that, that um uh funding conditions remain favorable you know as as far as the eye i uh, eye can see i mean as sarah was implying clearly you know, whether you worry about interest rates and government borrowing costs and interest rates more generally going up depends to a considerable degree on why they have. If uh, interest rate, real interest rates are going up because, you know, growth prospects are better, that has knock on benefits for the public finances. And, you know, that's a great problem to have. What you're much more worried about is, and there is a world in which you can say actually the you know the interest rate is globally set. So if the UK's g disappoints and r is basically determined globally, that would be one uh, one concern you would have. But the other one would be, uh, as Sarah says, uh, a, a country-specific shock, or perhaps. Uh, a country specific loss of confidence in policy institutions and the ability of governments to take tough decisions as and when there is a need to do so. So uh, I think that, you know, it, one, we can, and this week uh, <laughs> we have uh, talked about exactly what structure your fiscal rules ought to look like. But the broader question of are you confident in the fact that? You know, uh, I would say this, given where I've come from, that government fiscal policy is given robust independent scrutiny. There's independent forecasting uh, that informs it and informs the public. And that's not just one central forecast, but you know, lots of rich discussion of risks and uncertainties around that is as important as coming up with some set of rules that I suspect most people would conclude are no more likely to be met when the crunch comes than the last five sets of rules. Uh, have done. And so that's one reason why I think it's very important that when we get out of this acute phase of having, you know, essentially a a fiscal event every three weeks on average, we can get back to the OBR and the Treasury uh, having a proper, well-coordinated, well-informed policy and forecast process in which the OBR has the time to come up with proper uh, forecast numbers that the uh, that the policy package has time to get adequate scrutiny. Um, clearly, proper process has to stand to one side while you're dealing with battlefield medicine. But it would be, I think, a bad thing if 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 those needs of this emergency time in terms of of, of scrutiny and proper forecasting and proper analysis is allowed to persist and to become uh, the new normal. Uh, and uh, I hope very much that that can be restored because I think that is an important plan it's only one element along with independence of the central bank robust uh, auditing regulatory institutions etc that that adds up to a uh, an economic policy ecosystem that gives investors and voters and everybody else confidence that um that governments can cope with what comes along at them thank you Sarah can I
0: quickly come back to you on that is it from your perspective is that something that really does reassure investors the sort of institutional credibility of what's going on around the government as well as their sort of formal commitments
3: uh, certainly i mean institutional credibility and in- the strength of institutions and governance is something that's for us one of the really central uh planks of what constitutes uh sovereigns creditworthiness um, it's worth bearing in mind that when we when we downgraded the UK uh, late last year, one of the reasons was because of uh, what we could see as a noticeable uh, weakening of institutions, and that includes fiscal institutions. I should hasten to say uh, that that's not talking about the OBR. We, we've always at Moody's thought that the OBR was actually a really significant improvement to the institutional structure of the UK. But, frankly, the, the fiscal rules and the, the respect for fiscal rules, the predictability of policy, I'm not talking about during the pandemic, really preceding that, that period, is something where we had seen um, a meaningful weakening to the extent that it was one of the three reasons why we, we decided that the UK sovereign rating uh, should, should be lowered.
0: Thank you. So I think we just have time for one final question that's come in, um, from the audience. Um, Tim, I'll come to you first on this one. So the question is that the average person probably doesn't understand the intricacies of a lot of what we've been um, debating this morning. How can the Chancellor sort of explain to the public the sorts of choices and decisions that we've been talking about um, to create the, the space and allow the sensible economic policies to be followed over the next few years?
4: Well, I mean, you know, I know Simon has very strong views on this and, and issues around comparing government finances to household finances and lots of reasons why why why, why you don't want to do that. I mean, I actually think the, the kind of public at a, at a very high level understands that, right, which is, you know, the, the basic point is in the short term you need to provide lots of support to households and businesses to get through this one-off pandemic that was nobody's fault and the government is right to step in. That is what the Chancellor is doing. I think the government the public basically get that but the kind of second point which flows from that after all this you know there are going to be some difficult decisions to try and get borrowing back under control you know i think the public get that as well so so i think at a broad level you know now you can get into the intricacies of well you know are they thinking about the debt being need to pay back rather than dealing with the structural deficit? i just don't you need to go there with the kind of basic point you know you know short term you need to be supportive long term you've got to have a sustainable plan i think the public get and so i think it's quite easy for the chancellor to explain really
0: Great, thank you. Does anyone else want to
4: come
2: in on that last question? Well, I I would just say, I think two important messages are, one, you know, getting people away from the idea that we need quickly to pay back the money that we borrowed over this exceptional period, is one message. The other one is, if in the future we want to have a permanently larger state, we have to pay for it. Thank you. Can I just... Make another yep. point before, because you're kind of closing up. One thing
1: that no one has mentioned, and I think in the context of current, current low real interest rates, is really quite important. We've we've got a kind of conjunction of two uh, situations in it that that really work very well together. And a huge shame we don't use that fact. And that is, we've got very low real interest rates. And a desperate need to green the economy. And the way we're going to do that is in large, in, in, in good part, through public investment to, to stimulate private investment in green technology. And so it would be absolutely crazy if we had fiscal rules in place that prevented governments increasing public investments to encourage. Um, green investment and and uh moving to to green technology while real interest rates are low i mean that's an ideal situation really and we really ought to use it um just on the, the the public stuff um i think i think the best thing you could do to uh wean the public off the idea that the government is like a household which which a large part of the media continued to perpetuate is for the government to admit that it got it terribly wrong in 2010. I just won't say any more on that.
0: (laughs) Well, on that uh, cliffhanger note, unfortunately, we have now come to the end of our time. So thank you very much to all four of our panellists for joining us today. Thank you to you, the audience. Also, big thanks to my IFG colleagues behind the scenes who have made this possible today. Please do join us for future events, and thank you very much. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more, and if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit
3: instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.